like a child asking a father for the needs and desires of their heart, trusting that you are a good father, a powerful father who can accomplish whatever you desire to accomplish. So Father, we pray what we desire and we trust your will, that your will is perfect. You are always at work in our lives, through our lives, to accomplish your perfect will, your purposes for your glory and our good. Thank you, Jesus, for the redemption and forgiveness of sins that you've provided. Thank you for the cross and resurrection and your closeness to us. Thank you that your spirit lives inside of us and we are constantly reassured by you that we are the dearly loved children of our Father in heaven, that we are totally dependent on you to become everything that you've called us, everything you've created us, to become everything you're calling us to do. We thank you for other local churches in our in our area, like North Hills, we pray that you would bless them, be a, continue to help them to be a, a, a light for the gospel of Jesus, to spread and grow the kingdom of God. Use them uh, and other churches like them to continue to grow faithful gospel uh, collaborations and church planting teams to get the gospel to the unreached. We pray you'd bless them and the event they had yesterday about church health, that there will be fruit that grows from that in their church and in other churches. Father, may you continue to be with all its chapel as they look for a pastor to guide them and let them feel your leadership and your care through the men and women that are, are shepherding them and helping them right now. You are the great shepherd and love your people well through that, the leadership of that church. We also ask you to continue breathing life into our gatherings here at the Crossing and other local churches that are gathered right now around our area and throughout our nation. Help us to hold our love of Sunday in proportion to the greater overall mission that you've placed on us. May you bless the crossing kids. May you uh, help us as parents disciple them well so that they become disciple makers as well, even to the youngest of ages. Empower us and deploy the, the people who are part of the crossing as businessmen and women and who own or operate businesses that there would continue to be the the flavor of the gospel, even in how we work and how we lead and how we operate businesses. We thank, for, thank, thank you for ministries like 2414 who helps ministry uh, business leaders help spread the gospel through local businesses. Father, we pray you'd bless the state and our parish. Bless the government and those who are making decisions. May you give them wisdom and favor. Help get the gospel to those who have yet to hear, Father. Bless the ones that we've sent. And now speak to us through your word, Father. We want to feast on the reality of who you are as revealed through your word. So teach us, instruct us, transform us as Joseph prayed. We don't want to just hear someone talk. We want to hear God speak to our hearts. And so let us be discerning listeners that will we'll take what's in line with Scripture and what's good and helpful and beneficial. But we won't just, just believe everything. We'll search the Scriptures and make sure these things are true and then align our lives by your grace Empowered by your spirit, we'll align our lives with your truth, with who you've uh, created us to be, who you've called us to be, and how you're at work in our lives. Do all these things for the glory of Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. Uh, every year, we take time after Labor Day in the month of September, and, and this year to be into October, to remind ourselves and remember some of the core essentials of who we are as a local church and why we exist. Um, it's a vision series. Mission drift is super common in all organizations, uh, businesses, 
an organization or business is started with a compelling vision. This is who we want to be. This is what we're chasing. And they call people to join them, and they go. But over time, there's this, this leakage of mission. And it gets old or tiring or kind of routine and ritualistic. And you kind of lose the passion and the zeal you had at first. And so businesses or organizations have to assess, do we need to change the vision? Or do we need to recommit to what we, we established this for? And for us as a church, us as Christians, our original vision just flows from the scriptures. So if we want to change the vision, then we have to change the Bible. Uh, okay, that's kind of old. We don't really want to do that anymore. Let's just think of something new. We'll be the fun church where we'll just uh, have parties and talk about Marvel movies and Star Wars episodes. And, and uh, we'll just debate uh, what should happen, what shouldn't happen, and all that good stuff. And uh, tons of people want to come be a part of the fun church. I mean, that, that kind of stuff is kind of ridiculous, but we could do that if we really wanted to. Wanted to draw a crowd and have a good time. Uh, but our mission and vision comes from the scriptures, so we can't change that. And so as we're walking through a series like this, it's a constant um, uh, weight that we feel to assess ourselves as individuals, to assess ourselves as a church, and ask this question, are we still committed with the same passion, the same fervency, the same zeal, to see this vision, this mission accomplished in our lives and through us? Or are there things in our hearts that need to be tweaked, changed, transformed? We spent time last week reminding ourselves of what we're chasing, that we exist as a church for all people to find joy in Christ always. That's our vision statement, a unique way of expressing our desire in life for people to know Christ, not in a culturally Christian way that's common in the Bible Belt South, but in a genuine, authentic way that leads not to sour-faced religious rule-following, but to a people who know they are in Jesus and enjoy being the people of God. Yes, of course, when times are good, it's easy to have joy when life is going your way, but we don't take the good gifts of God's grace and just enjoy the gift, just for the sake of the gift. We use the gift and enjoy the giver. We use the gift and enjoy and worship Jesus through the gift. So the food's delicious, but we don't just stop at the food. We say, thank you, God, for creating this farm that grew this plant that turned into this food and had this animal that turned into this steak. And, and thank you, God, for creating us with taste buds that enjoy this food. It's worship to you for this delicious meal. We don't just enjoy athletic ability or being in shape physically for the sake of, wow, look how amazing I am. Look what I can do with a volleyball. Look what I can do in a gym. We, we take the, the body that God's given us and we say, thank you, God, for gifting me this body that has this ability athletically. And, and you give me this time and desire to work out and get it to a certain place where I can use this body to point people to you. So even in the good, there's joy because we're taking the good and we're worshiping Jesus. But even in the tough stuff of life, there's joy and we can find joy in Christ always. Because the tough times don't take away what matters most. And even in the tough, we can have joy because we still have our source of joy, Jesus. And that's what we want to see grow and spread in us and beyond us, throughout our region, beyond our region to the ends of the earth. More and more people from among all peoples finding Jesus and finding Jesus to be their greatest source of joy. And we believe the best way to describe how we carry out the mission to, to see that vision become reality is by what the Bible calls making disciples, making disciples. This idea of making disciples comes from Matthew 28, 
and, and other passages like it in verse 18 through 20. Jesus says, uh, Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, if you know the context of the Gospels, you know that this is some of his last words in his, his resurrected body to his closest followers before he ascends into heaven. And he's telling them that they're going to go, I'm commanding you, you go to all the nations. And nations doesn't, doesn't speak there of geopolitical uh, boundaries like we would think of the United Nations today. It speaks of actual language groups, people groups around the world. Go to all people groups and make disciples, followers, learners. You'll baptize them. In other words, they'll publicly identify with Jesus and his people. And you'll teach them to obey all he's commanded we go in his authority, and he said, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He goes with us. Now, this was a shocking statement to them because in just a few moments, they're going to watch him ascend into the clouds. Not to be seen like that again until he returns, for which we've been waiting 2,000 years and counting. And so when Jesus said, lo, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age, he knew he had been preparing them for what was to come this new work of God, never been done before, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, would for the first time come and dwell and live inside of God's people and never leave them. Now, before this time, the Holy Spirit would come upon someone for a season or for a task, empower them to do this work of God, and then it could, he, the Holy Spirit could leave. Didn't have to leave, but could leave. The Holy Spirit would come and go to accomplish God's purposes before this time. But it, and it wouldn't necessarily be all of God's people. It might just be some of God's people who would experience this reality of the Spirit of God on them to accomplish God's purposes. But now, God's people would not consist just of the Jews, but the Jews and the Gentiles would consist of people from all tribes, nations, languages, and tongues. And the Spirit would dwell in His people. Where is the presence of God in the Old Testament? The presence of God dwelt in the tabernacle. The presence of God dwelt in the temple. Where's the presence of God in the Gospels? It's in Jesus. Where's the presence of God now today? It's in his people, his church. And this is a new thing. No one saw this coming. Only God knew. And so this work of Jesus he came to do would continue through his people, this work of following and obeying and teaching about God's kingdom, this work of spreading the kingdom of God through his people, living under his rule and his reign until... Matthew 24, 14, this good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Then the end will come. And so disciple-making, preaching the gospel, seeing the gospel take deeper and deeper root in people, changing lives, seeing rebels turn to worshipers, seeing the enemies of God become adopted into the, to God's family as his dearly loved children. This goes on and on, empowered by the Spirit of God, living in us as God's people until the end of this age when all nations will be reached or considered reached when Jesus will return in the same way he ascended only God truly knows what this is going to look like like we have organizations like the Joshua Project and other groups that do their best to determine how many people groups have been reached and who are still the unengaged and unreached people groups but it's not as though God is just waiting for the Joshua Project to say, okay, we've reached them all, and he's like, now I can come back. He's not. We're, that's a tool for us to organize our work to accomplish what God's called and created us to accomplish, but God's not waiting on us to do that. 
He's not waiting on our timetable. It's his timetable. Only he truly knows when all people groups have been reached so that we know around the throne of God there will be representatives from all languages and all tongues and all tribes and all people. And when that time comes, the end will come and Christ will return and the eternal state will be ushered into existence. And until then, we do this task to make disciples among all peoples, locally and non-locally. We live obedient to this mission to make disciples until our final breath or until Christ returns, whichever comes first. And those could come at any day. The Bible teaches us to live with this expectancy that Christ could return at any moment or our life could end at any moment. So until our final breath, this is what we give our lives for. Jesus previewed some of this in the Gospels in the opening chapter of Mark 1, verse 16. He passed up alongside the Sea of Galilee. He saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. He goes up to them and says, follow me and I will make you fish for people. And immediately these two brothers left their nets and followed him. He went on a little further and did the same thing with James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. And they immediately left their father Zebedee and his boat with the hired men and followed him. And there's tons of great backstory to all of this, how amazing this was, that these men had already kind of been through the Jewish rabbinical training program and had kind of been rejected. And so they just, they're not going to be uh, Jewish religious scholars or, or religious leaders. They're just going to work a blue-collar job with their dad, the family business. And, and so to have a rabbi like Jesus come alongside and say, you, I'm choosing you, the ones who are rejected and follow me, was incredible. To have a rabbi do it, because usually in that context, in that culture, the, the potential disciples would go seek out a rabbi and say, hey, can I follow you? But here was a, a, Jesus, as always, God flips everything on its head. The rabbi goes and chooses the disciples. And these men left everything, which is incredibly sacrificial, to leave the family business and just go follow this carpenter from Nazareth around for three years. Follow me, he says, enter into this relationship with me in which I'm your rabbi, you're my follower, and I will make you, I will create a new you, someone who will also fish for people. Be used by me to create more followers. So there's this relationship with Jesus that leads to mission with Jesus to those who aren't yet the people of Jesus. Like, and this is a work of Jesus. Like, I will make you fishers of men. I will teach you. I will change you. I will give you this new identity I will help you. I will empower you. This is my work in you. Later in Mark chapter 3, Jesus went up on the mountain, summoned those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12, whom he also named apostles to be with him, to send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. In this naming of the 12 apostles or the 12 disciples, you might say, he chose them, he appointed them, he named them, he promised to be with them, and then he sent them to preach and to have authority like he had authority over demons. Very much a preview of the Great Commission. Now, we're not the original 12 apostles, but as followers of Jesus, we get new identities, we get new natures. Jesus promises to be with us, and we're also sent to proclaim the gospel, to preach and demonstrate his authority and his power, which could involve driving out demons it does in many parts of the world but it certainly involves the light invading the darkness the kingdom of light invading the kingdom of darkness in our world later in the gospels you see jesus actually sending out his disciples in pairs groups of two to have encouragement and accountability to do this work go from town to town and proclaim the good news of god's kingdom and heal the sick and cast out demons the light 
invading the darkness, life pushing back death. This was always part of God's desire. When he made us in his image in the garden and said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, the idea was the whole earth would be filled with image bearers. And these image bearers would show creation who the one true king is, the one whose image that we bore, so that all the earth would know the king and enjoy life under his rule. But as you know the story from Genesis 3, our parents rebelled. And they said, no, we'd rather make much of ourselves and disobey the king that we've been given. Yet the mandate still remained, but creation would now be infected with sin and the task is more difficult. In fact, the task is impossible apart from God's help to redeem us and remake us. And the fact that we keep rebelling, like every day, it's a battle in our hearts. Are we going to obey God or not obey God? And we're his kids, like we're his people, and it's a battle in our hearts, much less the, the, the vast majority of the world that, that doesn't know God as Father, that doesn't know God as the good king, that doesn't know Jesus as the Savior and separate of their so- souls. Instead of filling the earth, we see in Genesis, for example, they built a tower, and they built cities, and they stayed put. So God had to scatter rebellious humanity by confusing their languages at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. But the idea, even among God's covenant people, the Jewish people in the Old Testament, his chosen people, would be they would obey him and show the world how good life could be under his rule and his reign. And they would be a light to the nations and all people would be drawn to know and worship God. But Israel failed too because humanity is broken on the inside, infected with rebellion to God and sin. And so it took Jesus coming to show us what perfect obedience looks like, who God really is. And then dying for our sins, not his sins, dying for our sins and rising from the dead and ascending to the right hand of the Father. So then the Father and the Son could send the Spirit to make us alive and live inside of us and make us his people. That we would love him and we would obey his commands. Not perfectly, but enough Enough so that when Jesus would say in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against me. It's actually been happening for 2,000 years. Jesus has been building his church through imperfect people. Really horrible things that have happened in the life of the church. Yet his kingdom has been advancing and growing and spreading for 2,000 years. Like sometimes all we see is our failure and our inadequacies. What we can't do, how we have messed up, how limited that we are, how we wish things were better. We wish things were more accomplished. We wish things were more organized. The mission of God doesn't seem to be happening. The world seems to be getting darker. doesn't seem as though Jesus is building his church. It doesn't seem as though these things are happening. But rest assured, his church is being built. His church is growing. His church is spreading. His kingdom is spreading. It sometimes might be invisible or smaller or more hidden than we realize, but it is happening. So much so that one day there will be worshipers around the throne of God from all peoples. And we're a small part of that. This is what disciple-making is a part of. This is what disciple-making is all about. It's not just about how many people we can get to show up in a building like this on Sundays. It's not just how many people we can get to become members of, of a church or how many people we can get to show up at, as missional communities gather. There's zero correlation between, um, in the American church, between church size and church health or disciple-making. Like, n- none. 
You can look at churches, how big or how small they are, and draw no conclusions about how healthy they are or how well they're making disciples. It means absolutely nothing. You can be a small church or large church, and none of that means you're healthy or you're making disciples. Because in America, the, the church is so much a part of our history, and you can put on a show and people show up in America that you don't really know what that church is about. You don't know why that church is the size it is, whether it's big or small. So maybe we should ask, how do we know if we're making disciples? Since Jesus commanded us to make disciples, not fill up buildings. How do we know if we're making disciples? If a disciple of Jesus is someone, and it's easy to say that as a small church, right? <laughs> but even small churches are really healthy, but sometimes they take the smallness of their church as like a badge of honor. We're so pure. We're doing it so right. There's few people who can be a part of this. Also equally wrong and unhealthy. So I'm not hating on the large church. A lot of small churches are unhealthy too. So maybe we should ask, how do we know if we're making disciples? If a disciple of Jesus is someone who publicly identifies as being a follower of Jesus and whose life is committed to gospel transformation by obeying the teachings of Jesus, which includes making disciples. So a disciple of Jesus is someone who is continually growing and maturing in their walk with Jesus and they're making disciples. So if that's a disciple making, if that's a disciple, then how do we know disciple making is happening in our church? And the way we've tried to articulate that, what this looks like, is disciple making is we, we believe the gospel, we connect in gospel relationships, and we live gospel changed lives. Now these aren't like steps one, two, three. These aren't a sequence that you have to follow. These are three descriptors of what's all involved in disciple-making, three concise descriptors of what disciple-making looks like. So definitely making disciples involves people believing the gospel, continuing to believe the gospel. The more we believe, then the more we, we live and resting in and settled in this new identity, then the more obedient we'll be to make disciples. If disciple-making isn't happening in our lives, if the mission of Jesus is stopping with us, not happening through us, then there's some aspect of the gospel we're not truly believing. Either we're not fully resting in this new identity as God's people. In other words, we are God's people, but we don't feel like we're one of God's people, so don't feel like we have to obey God's commands because I'm in a, a, a state of disobedience or rebellion. Or I'm in, I'm in a state of despair or suffering or sorrow. And I'm, I'm hurting so much. I'm running so far away from him. I don't feel like I'm one of his kids. So I'm not living like one of his kids. Because if I was fully resting in and enjoying being one of his kids, I would be living like one of his kids, which would involve enjoying him and sharing his truth and his love with other people around me. So it could be this identity issue. We're not really resting in this new identity that we've been given, this new nature. Or it could be, I'm good, I just don't think that all that disciple-making and stuff is for me. I'm more overwhelmed by my fears and insecurities. I don't, I don't want to talk about Jesus because it makes me nervous. I'm afraid of what people will say about me. I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to be controversial. I don't want to push people away. So I'm just kind of hiding in my faith. or I'm comfortable just kind of going through the motions. Or I'm just outright disobedient. Now, the good thing is, if that's you, and, and honestly, that's everyone in this room probably to some degree, every, including me. 
some ways in which I'm not being fully as obedient and as passionate and zealous for this as Jesus wants me to be. So the good news is Jesus is incredibly gracious and patient with us. He's not going to stop working to bring us to this place of obedience. So if you honestly can't see where disciple making is happening in your life, ask yourself, what am I not believing about who Jesus is and who Jesus has made me to be? What am I not believing about the gospel? How am I not taking serious his commands and calling to do this, this kingdom spreading gospel sharing work through me? Like whose job is this in the local church? If you're a follower of Jesus, it's your job, my job, it's our job. It's us. We are plan A for this work, and there is no plan B. To get the gospel from Jerusalem, where the Holy Spirit descended after Jesus ascended to the ends of the earth over the last 2,000 years, plan A, and the only plan, is God's people through the church, the word of God, the spirit of God, and the people of God. That's it. So we look at people groups Billions of people, thousands of people groups who haven't yet heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, God's looking around. Who's going to do this? He's looking at us. It's our job. It's our job to do this. And, and sure, we're in Monroe. How do we get the gospel to, to people in faraway places like, I don't know, Indonesia? God's like, I got a plan. I'm working. I got these people. I'm going to put them together. I'm going to send them. You're going to be part of sending them. They're with this team. And he does this. And he's got other people who are part of our gathering who are already being prepared in their hearts to go and to be sent and to, to be a part of accomplishing this mission of God. Disciple making also involves, secondly, connecting to others in gospel relationships. So these relationships flavored by the gospel, driven by, to the gospel, flowing from the gospel. Now some of these gospel relationships are the ones that we have with each other as members of God's people. As Jesus sent them out two by two, so also we make disciples in community. Some of that disciple making happens between ourselves as we share and discuss and figure out how to obey the teachings of Jesus. Honestly, the last two years, most of the disciple making that's happened in, in a lot of churches has been the church caring for the church. Because the last two years have been miserable. And, and churches were beating themselves up because we're not seeing the gospel spread like we used to see it spread because of limitations, because of COVID. And we had to remind ourselves, no, 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 you're caring for your people. You're, you're helping your people work through some of the struggles of the last two years. You're making disciples among your people because you're seeing more and more fully matured, growing followers of Jesus as they more and more embrace the teachings of Jesus. That's disciple making. So this could be three to four men sitting around and discussing their struggle with anger and how the gospel helps them overcome sinful anger, but also use righteous anger, like happened the other night with a few of us. This could be some women sitting around discussing how their identity is rooted in Jesus and your identity is not rooted in your body image or your success or failure as a mom. Students encouraging and helping each other about the struggles of social media temptations. And how does the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and who that makes us, how does that help us navigate social media as students? That's all disciple making. That's all of us as God's people, identifying as God's people, taking the teachings of Jesus and living them out in real life. Disciples are being made. Joy is increasing. Sins are being confessed and repented of and confronted even. 
These are all relationships within the body of Christ, connected together by the gospel. And we're, when we're intentional about our vulnerability in these kinds of conversations, disciple-making is happening. But disciple-making <coughs> can also happen when we build and we have relationships with people far from God for the purpose of showing them the reality of Jesus and how we love them unconditionally and how we share the gospel with them passionately. And because we're not just after people making decisions for Jesus, but we're after disciples of Jesus, we understand that discipling someone, some of that can happen before they actually become a follower of Jesus. So for instance, you know someone who's not a follower of Jesus, and you live by them, they're in your family, you work with them, you shop at the same store, your kids are on the same ball team, however you came into a relationship with this person, you have this commonality, and you begin to... You know, the Spirit of God moves you. Hey, go after that person. Show them the love of Christ. They don't know me. So you begin to love them. You begin to invite them for meals. You begin to hang out with them. You begin to have conversations with them. You start texting. You connect on social media. And you genuinely love this person. They're not a project. They're not a, a person to, a, a puzzle to solve. They're not a project to fix. They're an image bearer of God. A lost child of God, as far as you know, who needs to find the love of their father in heaven. And you're the one that, you're part of the one, you're probably the only one, but you're the one that, as far as you know, God has sent to show them his love, to let them hear his truth. And you just stay in relationship with them, loving them, serving them, showing them, helping them, enjoying them, celebrating with them. And maybe... By God's grace, one day their eyes are opened and they see Jesus as the one who loves them the most, the one who did everything necessary for their life and salvation, the one who can be their forgiver, their savior, their king, their friend, the shepherd of their soul. And maybe by God's grace, one day they come alive in him and they begin to follow him. And all along, you've been showing them and, and, and telling them what life with Jesus looks like as a husband, as a wife, as a father, as a mother. And so that day they come alive in Christ, they have all of this record of instruction that you've given them already. This is how you deal with this sin. This is how you work through this problem. This is how you see life from God's perspective. This is how you work through this struggle. This is how your faith influences this. So you've been making a disciple before they actually became a disciple. But the light comes on by God's grace to come alive in Christ and all of that good work begins to bear fruit. They don't start from square one. They begin to live out this reality of Jesus that they've already experienced through doing life with you. Because we're, we're inviting people into our life to experience the peace of God, the shalom of God, the love of God. Like we believe conversion and discipleship are two sides of the same coin. There are distinctions that are necessary. So there, there must be a point in time in which someone comes alive in Christ. We're not born as Christians we're born dead in our sins and trespasses. Conversion is a work of Christ. But we aren't just beating people over the head with the gospel proclamations. Do you believe? Do you believe? Do you believe? And they say no. And we're like, well, I'm done with you. Move on to the next person. We don't do that. Because we don't know when and how God will call them into the kingdom of light. And as long as they're in our life and as long as God tells us to go after them and to love them and to serve them and show them his love, we keep going. Now, now, sometimes, and we could have a discussion about this, sometimes Jesus told his followers, if you go to a town, you proclaim the gospel, you share the good news, you do this work, and they totally reject you, you shake the dust off your feet, you go to the next town. And sometimes there are those kinds of relationships where God gives you the freedom to, to walk away because they 
are so filled with animosity, they hate you, uh, it's not working, whatever reason. But that's rare. Most of the time, it's just long and hard. It takes years. Years of loving, years of proclaiming, years of suffering, years of sharing, years of bearing with them through the good and the bad of life. But there has to be that time where conversion happens. We don't just push people away because they won't jump through our hoops that we've created. We're in each other's life because we're family, friends, we live, we're neighbors, we go to the same school, work at the same place. We've already had a relationship with each other. We maintain that if they're far from God to show the reality of the gospel of Jesus, to share the truth of Jesus. And so some disciple-making happens pre-conversion, but conversion has to happen. There has to be a Colossians 1, 13 and 14 moment where he's rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And we're born in that place of darkness and we have to be transferred into the kingdom of the Son. We have to be redeemed. But we don't know when or how that will happen in the lives of people we love. So we just continue to do life with them and love them for as long as God wants them there. And as Jesus flows through our character and our attitudes and our actions and as we share the gospel with our lips, by God's grace one day they come alive in Him. Some in this room have relationships with people for years and years and years. Some people in this room, maybe you've had relationships with people for decades. And they yet haven't yet believed in Jesus or become a follower of Jesus. But you just keep loving and sharing and praying and hoping and doing life with them. Wanting one day for them to believe and trust and follow Jesus. And some of those people might be really close to you. Sometimes it's spouses even family members, close, close friends, you don't give up. As long as there's breath in their lungs, you don't give up. And we live intentional lives seeking and looking and asking God for more of these relationships. So some of you might be like, well, I don't really know anyone. I've had people tell me this. I don't really know anyone who's not a Christian. And I'm like, really? Okay, let's talk about that. How do you define Christian? <laughs> and where do you live your life at? Because our culture is filled with people who aren't truly enjoying Jesus, who aren't enjoying the joy of their salvation, who aren't experiencing the deep love of Christ in the deep parts of their being. There's more people in our region who need his love and mercy and hope and joy. Some sit on church pews every week, and some of us are sent to to them through our jobs and schools and sports and kids and hobbies. Some of them never show up in a place like this, but we know them and we see them and we enjoy life with them, all the while begging God to save them. So disciple-making involves believing the gospel, of course, more and more as one of God's children. Maybe for some, today is the first day you really believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, and today is your, your day of salvation. That can happen. That's how the Spirit of God works and moves. Like you, you, it's, it's, it's instant. You go from death to life. You go from dark to light. Like it happens that fast. And then we also, disciple making involves connecting with others in gospel relationships. Either those we work with or those we are pursuing with God's love and grace. Thirdly, disciple making involves living a gospel changed life. How do we know we really believe? How do we know how can we share the hope of Jesus if we aren't enjoying his hope? If we're not experiencing it as well? 
This is obeying the teachings of Jesus. And the more we do that, the more the gospel shapes us and changes us. For mature followers of Jesus in this room, you could speak of amazing ways in which Jesus has changed you over maybe many years, maybe even decades. Ways in which you used to believe, ways you used to act, ways you used to struggle, but to some degree you've been delivered and you're experiencing some level of what you would call consistent victory. Like that can happen. Younger Christians may not have years of experience, but younger Christians can still have these sudden, robust changes that often accompany young, new faith. Sins repented of maybe for the first time, sins hated for the first time, steps of faith and bold, radical obedience that's happened for the first time. But for all of us, the gospel, as we believe, as we obey, will transform us. And one way it shows up is our desire and commitment to see more people know and love Jesus, to see more disciples made. Our kids, our city, our region, our family, our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors, we live with an eye on how is God at work in me and through me in all the places I live, work, eat, play to spread his love, joy, hope to more and more people. He's always at work all around us and all the people that we have connections with. It's us living with this this radar on. God, how are you at work? Where are you at work? Who are you working in? How can I be a part of what you're already doing in their life? And then we just obey. Just do stuff. I want you to go have this conversation with them. Okay, I can do that. I want you to go take this meal to them and tell them that I love them. I can do that. I want you to go have lunch with this person and encourage them. I can do that. I want you to have this really hard conversation with this close friend and talk about how they don't seem to be healthy. Okay, I guess I can do that. God help me. That's all he wants it to be, that simple. That simple, looking at the people that he's put in your life and asking those questions. God, how are you at work in discipling them and growing and maturing them in Christ and making them alive in Christ and, and how do I join you in that? What do you want me to do? And he'll tell you and he'll help you and show you. And then next week, we're going to talk about how we do this in community. These things we call missional communities. Hopefully you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, we'd love to come next week because we'd love to get you in a missional community. But that's how we do this together because on our own, we'll quit. We'll fail. Some of us have experienced that. We've tried to do it on our own and it's too hard. We need community for accountability, for encouragement. We need to have people helping us, spur us along, people checking us if we're getting off the rails. So is our church then making disciples? Who cares about how many people are sitting in the seats, how many people aren't? Are we making disciples? If we make disciples, that will take care of itself. Sometimes it can be measured in things like baptism, but putting people in a tank of water doesn't mean you're making disciples. Sometimes it can be measured in things like how many people show up, but attendance alone isn't enough. I guess the most important question to ask ourselves this morning is this. Am I making disciples? Am I involved in disciple making? This mission of God to get his good news and his love and his grace and his hope to all peoples, is it flowing through you or is it stopping with you? That's the question we can ask. And let the Holy Spirit speak and reveal and help you to see where you're at. And if you're struggling to figure that out, like that's why we're here. We're here to help people figure that out because we don't have it all figured out. We might be a few steps ahead of you, but we haven't arrived. We're still in process. We still struggle. But ask those questions 
Is the work of God, the mission of God flowing through you to others or stopping with you? Am I living a gospel-changed life? Am I growing my desire and ability to obey the teachings of Jesus? Am I growing more bold and identifying as one of Jesus' people? Am I growing in my desire to love and serve others, to see them enjoy Jesus in all of life, even people different than me? Am I seeing my life unsettled by disciple-making? Like, it's not going to be comfortable and cozy. It's not going to be easy. That doesn't mean you choose the hardest things to say, that's disciple-making, that I need to parachute into North Korea. That's not necessarily disciple-making either. You don't just choose the hard because you think that's the best, but don't choose the comfortable because you're afraid of the hard because it is uncomfortable to do this work of God because he doesn't want you doing it in your power, in your spirit. He wants you doing it with his help where you're totally dependent on him. We're only able to do these things because he's alive inside of you. Am I reorienting my time, priorities, and resources for other people? Or are you orienting your life for yourself? Are you reorienting your life for, for time, priorities, resources for other people to come to know and love Jesus? Or does your life really just live for yourself? Um, let's pray and, um, and continue to worship Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that uh, you had this incredible mission to come and rescue the lost, the sinner, the rebel. There's a bunch of us in this room that that is us. And we still fight and we still struggle and we still shake our fists in your face and we still want to run away, prone to wonder as we sang earlier. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. That is so many of our hearts. Maybe even have struggled through this worship gathering and wondered, why am I even here? So Jesus, I ask that you would speak right now to those hearts and give assurance and peace and rest that we are here because you've ordained that we would be here today for your purpose, for your glory, for our good. And you want to do good work in us to change our lives, to change our affections, to, to take our restless hearts that are restless until they find their rest in you. And you want, you want people this morning to find rest in you and what you say about them and how you see them and how you love them and not living for the applause of other people. Jesus, you died on the cross and rose from the dead to, make, to do everything necessary for that to happen in your people. And I, and I pray for those who are here that are your people, that you would speak peace and joy, and rest, and hope, and love. That they are secure in the arms of Christ. There is nothing on earth, nothing demonic, not even death itself can take us and separate us from the love that we have in Christ Jesus. So if there's unnecessary anxiety about salvation, Jesus, just speak peace. If there's necessary conviction about sin that needs to happen, Jesus, would you do that? Not shaming or beating anyone down or condemning anyone, but just revealing, here's where you're struggling and here's how I can help. Make it clear, Jesus. And of course, if anyone needs salvation, you are here, Jesus, to save. And so save today those as they turn from their sins and trust in Jesus for life now and life forever. 
Do that for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.